Well, this morning we're back in First Peter. We've taken a break for a couple weeks with Christmas and the New Year, and we come now to First Peter chapter two, and we'll be in verses thirteen through seventeen. We're going to be talking about living a life of submission. Living a life of submission. So if you haven't already, I'd invite you to take your Bibles and open them to 1 Peter chapter 2. And I'll begin this morning by reading our text for us beginning in verse 13. 1 Peter chapter 2 beginning in verse 13. Peter tells us this. Submit yourselves for the Lord's sake to every human institution, whether to a king is the one in authority or to governors is sent by him for the punishment of evildoers and the praise of those who do right. For such is the will of God, that by doing right you may silence the ignorance of foolish men. Act as free men, and do not use your freedom as a covering for evil, but use it as bond slaves of God. Honor all people, love the brotherhood, fear God, Honor the king. There was a field with freshly fallen snow, and a man watched as his father and this father and his son began to walk across that field of freshly fallen snow. The father began to walk, paying no attention to what his son was doing behind him. But as they walked across this field, the man noticed that although there were two people who walked across the field, a father and his son, he noticed that there was only one set of footprints. Why was that? Well, the son who was walking behind his father was paying special attention to his father's footprints and he made sure that he stepped only where his father had stepped. And the Christian life ought to be the same way. We ought to be people who follow after Christ's example. That we might walk as he walked, and especially in times of suffering. And as we've been studying in 1 Peter, let me just remind you that the believers that Peter is writing to are believers who have been suffering great persecution. As Peter addresses them back in chapter 1 and verse 1, he says that they are those who reside as aliens. They're living in areas where they weren't originally from. They had been forced to flee their homes because of persecution that was coming from, listen to this, the government and from the society of that day. And yet in light of that persecution, Peter told us back up in verses 11 and 12 of chapter 2 that as aliens and strangers, we are to abstain from fleshly lusts, and in verse 12, keep our behavior excellent among the Gentiles. Who is that? Who are the Gentiles? Those are the unbelievers. We are to keep our behavior excellent among unbelievers. Why? 
Peter tells us, so that as they observe your good deeds, they may glorify God in the day of visitation. And we talked about what the day of visitation was. That the day of visitation was the day of salvation for them. It's the day of salvation, that they would glorify God, that they would repent of their sin, put their faith in Christ, and be saved and give glory to God. The point is this. You and I are to live in such a way that we might win unbelievers to Christ. It's not only the gospel that we preach, but also our excellent behavior in our lives that will win them over to Christ. The two should match up. What we preach should match up with the lives that we live. And when you're living in an In a hostile environment, one of the greatest ways that you can be a witness for the gospel is by your excellent behavior. Living above reproach. We are not only to preach the gospel and tell others about the power of the gospel to transform lives, but we're also to show that transformation in our own lives by how we live. See, in the midst of persecution, when you have hostile enemies around you who are attacking you for your faith, the way that you silence them is not by attacking them back. The way that you silence them is by doing what is right. In fact, that's what Peter tells us in verse 15. This is a key verse in this section. Notice what he says there. For such is the will of God that by doing right you may silence the ignorance of foolish men. And even in in times of suffering and persecution, just as these believers that Peter is writing to are suffering, we are to live excellent lives just as Christ did, who is our model, our supreme example. In fact, if you look down at verse 21 of chapter 2, you notice that Peter says there, For you have been called for this purpose, since Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example for you to follow in his steps. Christ left us an example. He's become our supreme example of how we are to live in this world that is anti-gospel. Right? It is anti-gospel. So how do we live? We're to follow in the footsteps of our Savior. We're to do what is right. And listen, if there was anyone who could have rightly pushed back in the midst of suffering, it was Christ. Right? Why? Because he was perfect. In fact, Peter tells us down in verse 22, he committed no sin. He's sinless. And he could have rightly pressed back by saying, I have done no wrong. I'm completely blameless. I'm innocent. I've not sinned. And Jesus could have called a legion of angels down. As he tells Peter when Peter takes his sword out in the garden. Jesus could have called down a a legion of angels. 
And he could have rightly justified himself and used his authority over those who were persecuting him. And yet he didn't do that. What did he do? He submitted to the Father's will. And he submitted to those who were persecuting him. And Peter says that Christ is our example to follow. We are to follow in his footsteps. And this morning, as we look at living a life of submission, we begin this section where Peter will go on to talk about different areas of our lives where we are to submit. Here in verses 13 through 17, he talks about submitting to the governing authorities who are over us. Then in verses 18 through 25, Peter talks about slaves submitting to their masters. And then in chapter 3, verses 1 through 6, Peter talks about wives submitting to their husbands. Peter gives us different contexts in which submission is to be displayed. In which submission is to be practiced. In our relationship to the governing authorities, in our relationship to our employers, and in the marriage relationship. We are to be a people who submit And this morning we're going to begin with talking about submission to the governing authorities who are over us. But before we do this, let me just give you a quick biblical understanding of submission. A quick biblical understanding of submission. You see, submission is found all throughout the Bible. All throughout the scriptures. It's found. But in order to understand submission, we have to first understand authority. We must understand authority, which is also found all throughout the Bible. And we know that, first of all, that God is the ultimate authority, right? We know that to be true. We opened this morning with our call to worship from Psalm 47 and verse 7, which says, For God is the King of all the earth. We understand that He has all authority. He is the King over all. And we like that. We're okay with that. We amen that. And we say, amen, our God is king over all. Then we understand that Christ is the head of the church. He has all authority over his church. Colossians 1.18 says he is the head of the body, the church. Ephesians 5.24 says the church is subject to Christ. And we're okay with that. We like that. Christ is over his church. And so we can see that there is authority and order and structure that God has established. Then we begin to talk about authority and submission on a human level. And that's when we begin to start to squirm. Maybe not so much at first. I mean, if we read Ephesians 5.21, it says, and be subject to one another in the fear of Christ. Well, we're okay with that. Yeah, be subject to one another. Everybody be submissive to one another. And we're, we're okay with God telling us that we need to be subject to one another. 
But let me just pause here for a moment and say that submitting to one another does not negate the other relationships in which Christ commands submission. In fact, the context of Ephesians 5, if we were to study Ephesians 5, that submission in Ephesians 5.21 is what it looks like to be filled with the Spirit. Submitting to one another is what it looks like to be filled with the Spirit. Paul says in Ephesians 5.18, Do not get drunk with wine, for that is dissipation, but be filled with the Spirit. And then he goes on to tell us what it looks like to be filled with the Spirit. And one of the ways that you and I act out being filled in the Spirit, are filled in the Spirit, is we are subject to one another. We submit to one another. What Paul is saying here is that those who are filled with the Spirit have an attitude of submissiveness toward each other. And especially in the context of the local church, that we will submit to one another. Like Philippians 2.3 says, Do nothing from selfishness or empty conceit, but with humility of mind regard one another as more important than yourselves. Do not merely look out for your own personal interests, but also for the interests of others. And a believer who is walking in the Spirit will do that. That's what it means to be filled with the Spirit. They'll submit to one another and consider each other as more important than themselves. But again, this does not negate the other relationships in which Christ commands submission in his word. For example, we read about leadership and submission in the church. Hebrews 13, 17 says, Obey your leaders and submit to them, for they keep watch over your souls as those who will give an account. Then in 1 Peter 2.18, we see submission with a slave and a master. We could say that that is talking about employment today. That's the, the context in which we would interpret that verse. And Peter says there, servants, be submissive to your masters with all respect. And then we read in 1 Peter 3, 1, in the same way, you wives be submissive to your own husbands. And we get to those human relationships, and this is when the amens begin to dwindle. Because we don't really like to submit on a human level. And then we come to verse 13 here in 1 Peter chapter 2, and we especially find this hard to swallow in our current day. Submit yourself to every human institution, whether to a king as one, the one in authority, or to governors as sent by him. This is submission to government. But there's something inside of us that doesn't like this, right? Hmm. I want to fight against this. This is not our natural reaction and what we delight in doing. And especially as American citizens, we like our freedoms. Don't tell me what I have to do. I don't want to submit. 
submit to governing authorities who are over us? Are we really supposed to do this? In 2024? I mean, Ace, do you understand the day and age that we're living in? Maybe Peter didn't understand the day and age that was to come (laughs) that we would be living in. Are we to submit to them? The answer is yes, we are. We do submit to them. Why do we do that? Not only because we're commanded to do that, but because that is the example and model that Christ has given to us. In fact, remember when the Pharisees tried to trap Jesus in Matthew 22? And they said to him, Matthew twenty-two seventeen, 17, tell us then, what do you think? Is it lawful to give a poll tax to Caesar or not? Come on, Jesus, what do you think? What does Jesus do? Bring me a coin. He takes a coin and he says, who is that? Whose inscription is there? Whose face is on that coin? The answer was Caesar's. This was Caesar's. And what was Jesus' response? Then render to Caesar the things that are Caesar's and to God the things that are God's. And this was something that the Jews at this time were very reluctant to do. They didn't want to submit to Caesar. They didn't like submitting to Caesar. In fact, many of them were waiting for the Messiah to come and take out Caesar and set the Jewish people free. That's who they thought their Messiah was going to be, what he was going to do. That was their theology. They didn't want to submit to Caesar. But that's what Christians are called to do. We are to be people who submit. In fact, one commentator says, submissiveness has always portrayed the spirit of Christ in his people. Rebellion has never produced any response from God other than judgment. And he's right. He's right. Think about the Israelites in the wilderness who were rebellious. What came upon them? Judgment. They didn't get to enter into the promised land. They all died out in the wilderness. And so submission is what Christians do. We are to be a submissive people. And Peter here in verses 13 through 17 is specifically talking about submission to the governing authorities who are over us. So as we look at this passage here this morning, <clears throat> excuse me, we're going to see what Peter tells us about submitting to the governing authorities. We're going to see what Peter tells us about submitting to the governing authorities. So we'll begin here by looking at our first point, point number one, and what we'll call the command for submission. The command for submission. Look again at verses 13 and 14. Notice what Peter says there. He says, Submit yourselves for the Lord's sake to every human institution, whether to a king as the one in authority, or to governors as sent by him for the punishment of evildoers and the praise of those who do right. Now notice the, the command is given right there in the first word. The first word there is submit. Submit. 
In the Greek, it's an imperative, meaning it's a command. And although this is a passive imperative, the form of this word in the Greek is understood as a middle imperative, meaning submit yourselves, that you are to submit yourselves. Now, why do I tell you that nerdy grammar there? Because the idea behind this command that Peter is giving here is that we need to submit ourselves voluntarily. That's what the middle imperative is telling us here. That you are to submit yourself voluntarily. Yes, this is a command from God. But this is something that we do voluntarily, willingly. And we do this because God is the one who appoints rulers over us. We understand that. Daniel 2.21 says, He removes kings and he establishes kings. God is in charge of all of that. He's the sovereign. He removes kings and he establishes kings. So what should we do? Submit to them. We should submit to them. And the Greek word that is used here is hupoteso, which means to station or rank under, to arrange in formation under a commander. This Greek word that is used here is a military expression. This is a military expression that was used in which a soldier would come under the authority of a commander. This is what we're commanded to do in our relationship to the government over us. We are to be people who are living under submission to them. In fact, in Jesus' time, there was a group of people who were extremists known as zealots. Zealots. One of the disciples, in fact, Simon, is called Simon the Zealot. Simon the Zealot. He's called that to identify that he is different from Simon Peter. He is Simon the Zealot. But it also identified who he was before Christ saved him, that he was a zealot. Now, who were the zealots? Let me help you understand the zealots a little bit. The zealots were a militant and violent group of people And they believed that God alone had the right to rule over the Jews. God and God alone. Not any government official can rule over them. And they believed that they were doing God's work by assassinating Roman soldiers, political leaders, and anyone else who opposed them. In fact, in their theology, they were waiting for a Messiah who would lead them in overthrowing the Romans and restore the kingdom to Israel. That was their theology. In fact, Jewish historian Josephus talks about them in the antiquities of the Jews, and he says this, Of the fourth sect of Jewish philosophy, Judas the Galilean was the author. He's talking about the zealots here. We read about Judas the Galilean in Acts 5.37. Josephus says this, These men agree in all other things with the Pharisaic notions, which means they were what? They were religious. They were even a religious group. They believed what the Pharisees believed. They were religious. Josephus says, but they have an inviolable attachment to liberty and say that God is to be their only ruler and Lord. 
And in AD 6, a group of zealots waged a violent rebellion against Rome because of a tax census. They believed that paying tribute to a pagan king was an act of treason against God. That's what these zealots believed. And it was Judas the Galilean. This is not Judas Iscariot. It's a different Judas. This is Judas the Galilean who led this revolt until the Romans killed him and his sons. But even his death and the death of his sons didn't stop the zealots from doing what they wanted to do. All it did is it made them go underground and hide away. But Simon the Zealot was one of these guys. This was in his blood. But when he was saved, all of that changed. All of that changed. Instead of revolting against the Romans, he submitted to Christ and his teaching. And he lived the rest of his life focused on preaching the gospel. In fact, sources tell us that Simon took the gospel north and preached in the British Isles and was eventually martyred for preaching the gospel. Why? Because that was his focus. His focus was no longer on the liberty and the theology and all of the indoctrination of the zealots that he was a part of. His focus was now preaching the gospel. He was no longer a man who was a part of this Jewish sect with the political agenda. He was a man who was submitted to Christ and his teachings. And what did Christ teach? Submit to the government. Submit to the government. In fact, notice that Peter says in verse 13 that we are to submit to every human institution. See that there? In verse 13, submit yourselves to every human institution. The Greek there actually says, To every creature. To every creature. The word institution here in the Greek is actually the word creature. But then Peter defines what he means by creature where he says whether to a king or as to the one in authority or as to governors is sent by him. So that's why the translators translate it as institution. Because Peter qualifies who that is, this creature is that he's talking about there, saying it's the government institution. But why would Peter say, submit to every human creature? Why does he use the word creature there? Well, Peter's living in a time when emperor worship was popular. Emperor worship was popular. And Christians would have felt the social pressures to participate in this emperor worship. But they would have rightly abstained from this. They rightly would not have worshipped Caesar as Lord. Because who is Lord? Christ is Lord. And so in, in using this word creature here, Peter is reminding these believers that he is not telling them to submit to another god. Because all the people around them saw Caesar as what? A god. 
But what Peter is doing here is he's reminding them that this one that I'm telling you to submit to, he is simply a creature just like you are. He's a creation of God. He is no God. He's one who's created by God. And so, when Peter says here, submit yourself to every human institution, he's not saying, go and submit yourself to this God. Because there is no God. There is only one God. And so he says, creature here. Their submission was not to another God. Their submission was to the institution of government, which God had established over them. It was God's ordained institution. You see, in order to maintain peace and order in society, God has ordained government. And as we know, there are levels of government. But notice again, what Peter says here in this command, he says, submit to every human institution. Why every one of them? Because not telling us that we are to submit to every one of them would imply that we could disobey some of them, which would then imply that we could disobey God's plan for society. But what is Peter saying? Submit. To who? All of them. To every one of them. God has ordained government. God has established this in society to rule over the people, to lead the people. What is our job? Submit to them. Submit to all of them because they are all God-ordained. And who is this specifically? Well, Peter says, whether to a king is the one in authority or to governors is sent by him. Now, let me remind you, who was the king at this time? This was Nero. Nero was the king. In fact, Peter is writing this letter sometime around AD 65, but Nero came into power in AD 54. So as we even see the time of Peter's writing, we know Nero is in charge. Nero is in power. So these believers who are reading this letter understand what Peter is saying. He's telling them to submit to Nero as the king. And yet Nero was an evil, wicked king and was arguably one of the most sinister emperors in Rome. But he's the king that Peter would be talking about here. What does Peter say here? Submit. Submit. And remember, what is the command that we just spoke about? It is to submit. Not begrudgingly, not reluctantly, but we are to submit how? Voluntarily. Willingly. Submit to the governing authorities who are over us. This is our duty as Christians. We are to be submissive, even to those who we might think don't deserve our submission. We are to submit to them. We're to willingly come underneath their authority, which God has ordained. 
And it's not just to the king who has the highest level of authority, but also to those who are in a lower level of authority. Even governors who were sent by the king. And implied in this would be anyone who is in government with a lower level of authority. That's why we teach our boys that they are always to obey the police officer. You obey the police. You do what they tell you to do. Sure, they're not the ultimate authority in the land. But they are one who is under the king. They're a lower level of authority. Yet God's word says that we are to submit to them. And why do we submit to them? We submit to them because they are God-ordained. They're God-ordained. In fact, government and rules and laws are actually God's grace upon society. It might shock you, but it is. <laughs> government and laws and rules in our land are God's grace upon us. Why do I say that? Because they're put in place to keep things in check, to keep things in their proper place. We need laws and we need government in our society in order to keep evil in check. And listen to this. Even the most oppressive governments hold evil in check to some extent and prevent a society from collapsing into complete anarchy which is the alternative that none of us want. We don't want anarchy. We don't want that. Where do we find that? We find that all the way back at the beginning of the Bible, in the book of Genesis, where there's Noah preaching. How many righteous people? Only eight that get on that boat. The rest are all doing what? Living their lives however they want to live. Complete anarchy. And what does God have to do? Wipe it all out. Destroy it all. The wickedness was great in the land. And God destroyed them. We don't want anarchy. We don't want sin to go completely unchecked. We need government and we need laws in order to keep evil in check. In fact, Proverbs 29, 18 says, Where there is no vision, the people are unrestrained, but happy is he who keeps the law. There's blessing in laws, in keeping the laws. Government is always better than anarchy. And even oppressive governments are better than anarchy. John Calvin said, even tyrannical governments provide some measure of order in society. We even look at communist countries today. It's better than complete anarchy. Because at least there is some order that is there. That is put in place. And so Peter's telling these believers and us that we are to submit to government. And as John MacArthur says, that command does not exclude authorities who make bad or unjust decisions. It doesn't exclude authorities who make bad or unjust decisions. We all understand that there are corrupt rulers. 
They are called sinners. They're sinners that are ruling over us. Sinners who are in authority over us. And we understand that some of them are corrupt. But we also have to understand that there are good rulers who are over us. That not all are bad. There are some good authorities who are over us. And by and large, they are still keeping things under control. Evil is still being suppressed. There still are jails and people that are being locked up for the evil, wicked deeds that they're doing. But we as believers, we also understand that God is the ultimate ruler and the sovereign king, and so we trust him as we submit to these rulers who are over us. Now, what is the responsibility and purpose of government? I'm glad you asked, because Peter tells us here the purpose of these ruling authorities. Notice he says there, for the punishment of evildoers and praise of those who do right. This is the responsibility that the ruling authorities have. And there are two main responsibilities that we see here. Punish the evildoers, praise the righteous. That's their responsibility. Punish the evildoers, praise the righteous. Their main role is to restrain evil. And they do this by creating fear in evildoers when they punish those who do evil. And they are then to protect or honor those who do what is right. Now, do they do this perfectly? No, they don't. We understand that. They're they're fallen people that are ruling over us in government. We understand that. This is their role. This is their job. And even when they don't do this perfectly, we're still commanded to submit to them. Peter's well aware that the governing authorities don't always act in this way, that they punish the evildoer and praise the righteous. He knew his Old Testament. He knew kings like Pharaoh and Nebuchadnezzar. He knew of those guys. And he knew of Nero and the persecution that these believers were under, which came from Nero and the governing ruler. And yet, Peter tells them they are to submit to these governing authorities, both to kings and to governors, as those who are sent by the king. And so, that is the command for submission. The command for submission. But what's interesting is that Peter doesn't qualify this submission with any exception. Notice there's no exception that Peter gives us here. Why doesn't he do this? Well, because he knows that we all know that there is an exception. Peter knows that we all know that there is an exception. And the exception comes in our next point, point number two, and what we will call the motivation for submission. The motivation for submission. If you look back at verse 13, notice I skipped over four words there. Verse 13. Four words, for the Lord's sake. For the Lord's sake. 
You see, this is the motivation of our submission. Why do we submit to the governing authorities? Because we desire to honor the Lord. Because this is what the Lord tells us we are to do. And Lord here is most likely a reference to Christ. In fact, back in chapter 1 and verse 3, Peter said, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. He identifies there Christ as Lord. Christ is our master. He is the one we ultimately submit to. But because we submit to him, we also submit to the government because that is what our Lord tells us to do. And isn't that what Christ modeled for us? In fact, look down at verse 23 of chapter 2. Notice what it says there. And while being reviled, he, Jesus, did not revile in return. While suffering, he uttered no threats, but kept entrusting himself to him who judges righteously. Christ never opposed the Roman and Jewish right to rule over him. He never opposed that. Yes, he did denounce their sin. He spoke the truth and he denounced their sin, but he never sought to overturn their authority. He never did that. In fact, even when Jesus was on trial, Pilate said in John 19.10, Do you not know that I have authority to release you and I have authority to crucify you? How did Jesus respond? He said, You would have no authority over me unless it had been given you from above. Jesus didn't try to start an insurrection or revolt against Pilate's authority. In fact, he acknowledged the authority that Pilate had. He said, yes, you do have authority over me, but remember, that authority that you have is only because God has granted you that authority. Christ knew ultimately where Pilate's authority came from, and he submitted And as we look back at Christ's example, we obey our earthly authority because we honor our divine authority. We submit to our earthly authority because we love and honor and respect our divine authority. Our Lord commands us to submit. And so we submit for the Lord's sake. But as I said, implied in this is the exception. What is the exception? When the governing authorities tell us to go against our Lord. When they tell us to disobey our Lord, we then respond like the apostles did in Acts 5.29, we must obey God rather than men. That's the exception. And it's implied right there, for the Lord's sake. Why do we obey God rather than men? Because we do all for the Lord's sake, which means we submit to the government for the Lord's sake, and if we have to, we disobey for the Lord's sake. Because it wouldn't honor our Lord to disobey Him for the sake of obeying our government. Ultimately, Christ is King, and we obey Him. One pastor said, when those human authorities get in between me and the will of God, I will, by conviction, obey my Lord. When they get in between 
me and my God, me obeying what my Lord tells me to do, that is when I will obey my Lord. But listen, listen church, even in that act of disobedience, we don't do it in defiance or unsubmissiveness. We, even in the act of disobedience, are still to show submission. You see, if we disobey and the consequence is jail, then we submit and we willingly go to jail for the Lord's sake. Because it's all for the Lord's sake. We do all things for our Lord, including submitting to the governing authorities who are over us. Even when they want to persecute us, even when they want to throw us in jail, we submit and we do it all for the Lord's sake. And so that is our motivation. Why do we submit? Because we love our Lord. And that's what he commands us to do. Until the governing authorities come in and tell us to disobey our God, we continue to submit to them. That's what we're called to do. And so that's the command for submission and the motivation for submission. And there are three more points that I have, but we don't have time for them today. But before you close your Bibles, take your Bible and turn over to Titus chapter 3. I want to end with this this morning. Titus chapter 3. Titus, obviously, is a pastor. The Apostle Paul is writing to on the island of Crete. He's setting things in order there for the churches, for the believers there. And notice in Titus chapter 3 and verse 1, notice what Paul says there to Titus. He says, remind them to be subject to rulers, to authorities, to be obedient, to be ready for every good deed, to malign no one, that is to speak evil of no one. Hear that, church? To speak evil of no one, including who? The authorities that are over us. Oof, that one hurt a little bit. It's what it says. To malign no one, to be peaceable, gentle, showing every consideration for all men. You see, this command to submit to government wasn't just coming from Peter. This submission to rulers and authorities comes from Paul as well. Notice what he says there. He says there in verse 1, be subject to rulers, to authorities. And notice he says to be what? Obedient. To be obedient. It's interesting how obedience and submission are always tied together. Because submission implies that we obey an authority who is over us. 
So we show our submission to authority by our obedience to them. But then Paul goes on and he says, at the end of verse 1, notice what he says there, to be ready for every good deed. You see, that should be our heart. That should be our attitude. We should not be ready to be unsubmissive or rebellious or defiant. But we should be ready for every good deed. Which would include submission. Why? Because that's what God has commanded us to do. We should be ready for that. Have a willing spirit that is ready to submit to the authorities who are over us because that is what God has commanded us to do. And there is a purpose that God has in those good deeds that we do, that he commands us to do here, which Peter talks about back in verse 15 in 1 Peter 2 and what we will look at next time. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your grace, for your mercy. Thank you for the governing authorities who are over us and the, the grace of government that you have established in your perfect design for society. Father, I pray that you would help us to be a people who would be ready and willing to submit to the governing authorities who are over us. Father, we do pray for them. Again, we pray for President Biden, and Vice President Harris, and Governor Walls, and others who are in leadership over us. Father, we pray that you would draw them to you. Lord, we know that nothing is impossible with you. But all things are possible for you. So Father, we do pray that they would be saved. That they would repent of their sin and trust in Christ. And that they would be used by you to accomplish your purposes, your perfect plan. Father, help us to have a spirit of submission, humility, that we would humble ourselves, that we would malign no one, but that we would honor and glorify you in all that we do and say. Father, help us to be a beacon of light in this place, in this land that we live in. Father, that we would not be a rebellious people, but we would be a submissive people who ultimately submits to you as our king. We thank you that you are our king and that you rule and reign on your throne. Help us to continue to glorify and honor and worship you and you alone. We pray this in Christ's name, amen.